Breathing in and out seems like the most natural thing in the world and is the most life-sustaining action that we take every minute of the day. Yet, surprisingly, the basic structure and function of lungs over time raise questions that call for exploration by large teams of scientists, all of them contributing insights from their own disciplines. This new research is offering clues about how our lungs develop. Researchers in the burgeoning field of proteomics, the study of the genetics of proteins, shed light on the remarkable ways that lungs are formed and how they function from pre-infancy to adulthood. Well, writing in a, a recent issue of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, our two guests today, Jeremy Clare and Lisa Bramer, and their co collaborators have described their exploration of the nearly 9,000 proteins that are involved with lung development. Their research lays the groundwork to help scientists and doctors address lung-related problems. These are of special concern for premature newborns who have not yet developed lungs that are mature enough to greet the world. Jeremy Clare and Lisa Bramer are researchers at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, where they study the genetics behind the development of lungs. Jeremy and Lisa, welcome. Thanks so much for having us. Uh, Jeremy and Lisa, I found your article about lung development very intriguing from many angles. But before we jump into your research topic, I, I kind of like to envision where you carry out your research. You know, my, my image for research settings are university campuses that have labs that are populated by faculty and postdocs and graduate students. But I know that our national labs are another vital venue for basic research. And so as we start out, I was wondering if you could briefly describe your research setting. How similar or different is it from a university setting? Yeah, I mean, when I think of a national lab compared to a university, there there are a striking number of similarities. I think one of the fundamental differences is that national labs tend to have the staff um, and cutting edge instruments to answer sort of bigger problems than might be possible in academia. So if I were working at a university, uh, the amount of collaboration that I do compared to what I do at a national lab would would be much less. I have access, I have access to people right who, computer software developers or biologists or chemists or, you name the field, and someone exists where we work. That's so cool. It sounds like a really stimulating and wonderful place to work. That's great. Let's get to the project itself. Um, I know that it's all about lungs, and your team has used this cutting-edge approach of proteomics uh, to go beyond our understanding of the development of lungs in mice and to actually use work on lungs of humans. And then it sounds like you have like a tremendous amount of data from all of this mass spectrometry, um, and that that must have taken weeks or months before you perform these analyses. You know, when you were performing these analyses by hand. But it sounds like with your collaboration with Lisa and other bioinformatics uh, professionals, um, you've been able to really speed up that process. And so I'm wondering now, you know, as you work with proteomics, what is the bottleneck, Lisa? Is 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 the analysis still sort of the slow step, or has has the influx of using these complex analytical techniques really sped up the whole process of your research? Yeah, I think that previously to be able to identify proteins, 
those techniques have been well established. What's been difficult in the past is having appropriate algorithms to actually be able to quickly identify proteins or biomolecules of interest. And so as statistics and data science have really matured to do things like machine learning, or you probably have heard of artificial intelligence, these these types of algorithms really have helped speed up our time to discovery, uh, you know, along with advances in computers and how much data they're able to process at once. I see. So it sounds like that this, these sort of advanced analytics have really been fundamental in terms of allowing these different onomics uh, types of fields to progress as rapidly and as productively as they have. Yeah, most definitely. And, you know, one of the, we've had a lot of these algorithms around, they've just not always been applied to fields like um, proteomics. And so now that we're applying those to these fields, we, we, part of my job is to tweak the algorithms to deal with that type of data so we can really leverage their power. Got it. Okay, great. I was wondering also about um, sharing data, you know, on these big science, big data accumulating projects like yours. Um, maybe Lisa could address this. Like, how do you go about archiving and, da- and, and sharing data that you might have collected during, during your research work? Yeah, um, so it's very important to be able to make that data available to, to other researchers. And here at PNNL, we do have an internal system for cataloging all that data. But as we get ready to release publications and working with this consortium that Jeremy um, has mentioned, right, it becomes really important for us to be able to bundle the data, particularly at the level where other researchers who don't have the expertise can actually do the analysis. So after it's gone through these processing steps, we'll release that package of data with the publication often, um, or it can be deposited into a repository online where other researchers have access to go download the data and and look at it themselves. I see. Interesting. I'm trying to sort of think of parallels in ecology, which is my field. And, you know, I think those kinds of questions do develop very often at conferences, sometimes in the field, uh, sometimes I would imagine at hospitals or, you know, where you encounter people that you can really start developing relationships with. So that's that's so interesting. Are you I, I noticed that there was a group that you called Lung Map. And I was wondering if you could describe what LungMap does. It sounds intriguing for a person like me who's kind of outside of this world of working with lungs. So the LungMap is a program where researchers, clinicians, are trying to build a three-dimensional atlas of all the molecules that are composing the lung. And we are doing that from birth to adulthood. The reason we are doing that is to explore what are the changes, molecular changes that are occurring But we are not looking only at transcripts or proteins. We are looking also at metabolites, lipids, and we are trying to replace them uh, in a 3D map in in some ways to be able to understand the interaction between the cell types that are composing the lung. Um, We are also trying to understand the interaction between the different molecules that are composing the lung. And that will help future researchers to develop new hypotheses. And again, the lung map is putting all the data generated and there is imaging, omics data, um, there is genetic information. Well, there is no genetic information. Sorry about that. uh, For the protection of the privacy of people. So there is uh, images, there is um, 
molecular images, um, yeah, um, omics data sets, and um, in a wide variety of cell types, different scales. It's really a rich um, resource that we are trying to build for uh, the long biologist, researcher, and uh, doctors. That's fantastic. I love that integration between basic biology, what what you guys are studying, you know, with a sort of clinical applied sense of um, of how these data, how this information, how your new understandings can actually be applied to a, in a clinical setting. So I, I think that's fantastic. Um, yeah, if I can just interject briefly. Yeah, sure. Please go ahead. So, you know, one of the reasons I'm passionate about the type of work that I get to do is like Jeremy was talking about, this consortium exists and the end goal, the better we understand the lung or other organs, the better that we can design therapeutics, right? Or, or medicine to treat different diseases. Um, or um, I guess Jeremy can correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, the more we understand, the better we can target when somebody has something wrong with that organ and, and understand how to appropriately treat it. Sure. I mean, I think that's the hope, isn't it? And, you know, it's funny, I just became a grandmother for the first time of last month. And um, the baby was born prematurely. And one of the big concerns was about uh, the development of, of, of this, our little granddaughter's lungs and whether they would sort of develop on time or not. And so I was thinking about your research, you know, in the context of how this might help guide physicians to be more aware of lung conditions of, of, prematurely born infants or just infants in general and kind of wondering about that connection between basic research and applied applications of it how how long that i don't know lag time might take for your your results to be translated into sort of clinical applications if you have any idea of that it's very interesting uh, to think about premature births because the lungs of the babies are exposed to air too early during their development. So that might result in abnormality in lung development and um, delay or increased um, production of certain cell types that shouldn't be here. And one thing that we have tried to do in that specific paper is uh, to try to use tissue to predict the developmental age of the lung. So what Lisa did, she used machine learning strategies from the proteomic data that we got to try to predict what was the developmental age. And that prediction was pretty accurate. So let's say we have a kid that, that has a developmental delay. It's really hard by just looking at the kid to know what is his stage in development. But by doing a, a small uh, biopsy and using a proteomic approach, we could potentially evaluate at what point of the development the kid is and try to help him uh, continuing his normal development. So this is one thing I wanted to say. And another thing is to be able to understand all those mechanisms of development. We have to understand what are the regulatory systems that are triggering different steps of the development. So we have looked by looking very deep into the proteins that we can uh, quantify we have been able to identify specific regulatory proteins that are responsible of some part of the development. I'll do it again. We have tried, we have been able to identify even very low abundance protein 
that can participate in development. I see. Fantastic. Um, I'd like to just steer our conversation into a, a little bit of a different direction. On this show, on Undisciplined, we like to bring together the tools and practices and sometimes even theory from one discipline to another. And, you know, your work involves mapping lung structures, but mapping structures that have tree-like structures like lungs do might provide some insights for your work. Like, for example, neuroscientists and people who study vascular systems like blood vessels are very interested in this because all of those have tree-like forms. And I know that in the 1960s, a hydrologist, a scientist named Arthur Strahler, who studies water flows, came up with a process to actually map streams, real streams, you know, real streams and rivers, by ordering them based on the number of tributaries that they have. And I was wondering whether the mapping techniques that have been developed for other tree-like structures, like blood vessels or streams or even trees, in those fields, could they help with mapping lungs or is that just too far off to think about? Um, you know, in biology, what we often are looking at are, are sort of pathways, like Jeremy was alluding to. So these pathways of reactions that happen sort of one after another. So we often think of biological processes in terms of networks. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of times we can start to think about, there are a lot of places that you see networks in, in um, other disciplines as well. I actually do have an answer that is interesting. So the lung of humans don't have the same tree structure as the lung of mice or as the lung of alligators. Um, the tree structure is very different depending on the organism. So it's really important to be able to place different cell types in those tree structures to be able to understand the biology. This is uh, necessary. But when I think about the hair and the branching structure, I think that those questions are more important in terms of exposure science because the lung is the primary place of respiration and it's where you are getting your hair from. And there is a lot of flow dynamic um, that is going into that. And there is a lot of people actually studying those flow dynamics in the lung, depending on the branching structure. Oh, I see. So it really is like a sort of a tree inside our bodies. And I think you're looking at mapping from a different standpoint than just the, you know, the, the trachea and the, and the alveoli. But um, maybe there's something there in terms of looking to other disciplines for techniques or applications or ways of understanding that might be that might be useful in both directions yeah if you think about like a pollutant exposure uh, depending on the size of the particles and the flow dynamic that is going into your lung the particle may land in different part of the lung and understanding that flow dynamic is helping to um, figure out what part of the lung you should study when you're looking at certain type of pollutant or nanoparticles or any other uh, thing that could be harmful. I see. I see. Um, I'm wondering, Jeremy, if you could just briefly summarize sort of the the take home message or messages from your from this paper, and just sort of to to let me know and let our listeners know what was it that you really found out. Um, so, from that specific paper, we found that. Um, the development is something that is ongoing, not only from birth to like one year old, but is going beyond uh, that time period. 
this was something that was known already, but we've been able to partition the different steps of development uh, further than what was done before. We have found that there is kind of four uh, sub-stage of development uh, postnatally. So the lung of the people are developing even when you are born. And there is multiple stage uh, in that development at the molecular level. This is one of the very important uh, finding of the paper. The second one, uh, which is very important as well, is we've been able to quantify the different regulatory processes that are changing during those different steps of developmental process. Uh, another important take-home message is that we've seen a very big change in the immunity between birth and adulthood, or in that case, we looked up to um, adolescence, teenage time. Uh, so we've seen big changes in the immunity and the immune system that is resident in the healthy lung between birth and eight-year-old, 10-year-old. And that's really important because when you think about uh, pulmonary diseases, and we know all uh, a lot about them these days because we are in the middle of a pandemic, not all the same age are responding the same way to the disease. And this is due most likely to the fact that the immunity of the lung of a baby are very different to the immunity of a lung of a two-year-old and very different um, from what is happening in the lung of an adult. Interesting. Very interesting. That's fantastic. You were really able to quantify that and nail that so that others can build on it. And that kind of leads me to my next question, which is um, what, what comes next? You know, what are you, what are you, how do you determine what comes next? Do you go to meetings or retreats and, and plan out your next move at conferences or do you do this over beers or is it very clear what the next question is? How would you describe like how you decide to move your research further? And I, I'm kind of interested in the answers of both of you, you, Jeremy, the biologist, and you, Lisa, the, the statistician. So in that specific work for now, we have looked at one scale. We took a piece of tissue, we dissociated it, and we look in depth at what are the changes that are happening in the molecules. But now we need to understand if those changes are coming from a single cell type or from the different cell types that are composing the lung. The lung is made of 40, at least 40 different cell types. And you can imagine that the signal you get from a piece of tissue is not the same as if you were looking at the fine alveoli structures or if you were looking at the airway structures. So understanding the spatial differences that are happening in the lung is something that all the members of that consortium we are working in are very interested and uh, understanding how the, dif the different structures are talking between them. And there are sometimes multiple cell types that are composing a, a, a tissue structure that are achieving a function. And we need to understand those interactions between cell types, between tissue types, and between the different organs even uh, inside the body. I see. That's very clear. Um, Lisa, what would you say kind of your next challenges are if you're choosing to stay? I mean, you've got lots of other projects with influenza and terrestrial carbon and, and other kinds of work that you've done, you know, you've contributed your statistical knowledge on. But if you if, would you be interested in staying on with this lung project and providing your expertise to this particular group? Yeah, my as a statistician, you know, my skills are often needed by many people. So 
we get I get a nice wide variety of folks to work with, but certainly projects like this that are in uh, human health are of particular interest to me, as I feel like I very clearly can see the path of how what I'm doing might make a difference and an impact to better society and people's lives. So, you know, for me, it's, yeah, finding opportunities to continue to work on projects like this. And also, you know, as I think about what's next, too, is what kind of new statistical algorithms and methods can I be developing to help folks like Jeremy make the next big biological discovery? And so, you know, part of what I do from day to day, too, is I work with and collaborate with people like Jeremy, and I also work on projects that are solely focused on statistics and how we can improve those things as well. So that when Jeremy and others have interesting questions, um, we can help as best as we can answer those. That's fantastic. I love that collaborative ring to what you're talking about, which is not only are you helping Jeremy and his colleagues in biology understand what they're curious about, but you're also working and pushing forward the field of statistics and bioinformatics. It sounds fantastic. Um, I have one last question for each of you, and that is, um, especially for our younger listeners in the audience, I'm wondering what advice you might give to those who might want to study in this field, either lung development or statistics and bioinformatics, wondering what you might tell them in this, I mean, it seems like such an exciting place to be at this point in, in proteomics and in, in understanding these fields. What would you, what advice would you give them? Like if you were talking to a young woman, you know, an undergraduate or a young graduate student, and they were looking at you going like, Lisa, I love your life. I think what you're doing is so great. What would you tell them in order to, you know, help them move into your position at some point? Yeah, I, I think one big piece of advice that I would would give younger folks is to really be curious about everything. And so, you know, I didn't go into statistics knowing that I actually wanted to be a statistician. I, I went into it sort of by happenstance saying I'm good at math. And I was just curious about what it is I could do with statistics and how I might be able to make a positive impact. And so really being curious and open to possibilities and, I will say it's not always been um, a very, you know, straight, direct, and easy path. And so understanding that you're not always going to be good at everything that you first set out to be. So, for example, for me, when I first started, I really hated computer programming. And that is essentially mostly all, <laughs> it's mostly all that I do now, right? And I've gotten to be very good at it. And so, you know, being curious and not letting things that you need to improve and learn stand in your way that if you work at it, you can get there. And so for me, the biggest driver of, of what I do is I want to know that something I'm doing is, is helping society and people move forward a little bit better than, than they were today. And, you know, finding a, a niche of a place where you're able to do that is, you know, where you're able to feel like what you're doing matters is, is probably my biggest takeaway. I love that response. That was that was perfect. Thank you, Lisa. That's great. Jeremy, what would you what kind of advice would you give to those who want to study in your field? So to those who want to study in my field or in any field, actually, I would tell them to um, to be uh, perseverant because sometimes something is not going the way you want and you will have to redo an experiment 20,000 times 
<laughs> for it to work. Um, and, and, and it's important to try to be curious, like Lisa said, because what you want is really to explore the world around you, to explore questions that you don't understand and to try to put yourself in a scientific mind, which is building hypotheses, testing them. So really science is all about that. It's not about being good in school or being uh, bad in having bad grade in math. It's all about being curious, being perseverant and trying to do things that you are passionate about. Wow, those are that is great advice. Be exploratory, have curiosity, think about ways you can contribute or your science can contribute and be perseverant, I think. Um, all of those are, are great qualities, I think, for someone in your field or someone in any field of science to pursue. Well, I wanna thank both of you for your contributions, for your helping us understand this really important topic of lung development and, and proteomics. And um, I wish you well in your future research and in your wonderful collaborations and the teams that you've built so far. So thank you again for your participation. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. You bet. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks for listening. Now, go have big ideas.